Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. Uh, appreciate you being here with us today. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to uh, just remind you all that we have a conference coming up. I keep forgetting to announce it, and it'd probably be good if I did. Um, April 22nd through 24th, our annual conference every year. Um, Don Preston will be speaking this year. Uh, Mike Sullivan. Jeff, myself, Glenn. Um, so we're looking forward to a good time. We've got several people registered already. So just encourage you to uh, call the hotel, get your room booked, get things ready. So uh, we're going to have a good time this year. Should be fun. All right. One more announcement before I get started. Not really an announcement. I just want to say thanks to those of you who support this ministry. We couldn't do what we do here without your support, so it's just, uh, I really appreciate it. I mean, it just amazes me, the people that send money into this ministry. I am always uh, stand in awe of what you people do, and I appreciate your support of this ministry. All right, we are continuing our study in John. We're just in the prologue still of this fourth gospel. We come this morning, I think, to the most incredible truth that we find in Scripture, And that's that Yahweh became a human. This is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. Now before we look at the incarnation, let me remind you why this is important. In John 1.12, it says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now who is it that has the right to become sons of God? It's those who believe in His name. Now, to the ancients, one's name expressed the sum of the qualities that mark the nature or the character of that person. So, to believe in His name means to accept the revelation of who Yeshua is that God has given. It involves believing that Yeshua is fully man and fully God come to redeem the world. You cannot deny the deity of Christ and believe in His name. Because that's who He is. You can't say He's only a man and be believing in His name. He is not just a man. He is the God-man. Now we saw in verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word has been in existence from eternity past. Don't think about that too long because it will hurt. But forever and ever the Word has existed. And the Word, it says, was with God. This prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the Father and the Word because He was with the Word. And then it says, He was, the Word was God. So the Word was from the very beginning. He was with the Father and He was God. And then in verse 3, we find that He's the Creator of all things that have been created. And now with that in our mind, in verse 14, Lazarus writes, And the Word... The same Word that was with us from the beginning, the same Word that was with God, the same Word that was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible translates this. And the Word became a human being and lived with us. And we saw His Shekinah. The Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The eternal Word, who was with God and was God. The Word who created all things, came, became at a point in time, a human being. You know, this verse teaches the staggering truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was Yahweh become man. 
the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other baby. C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, in the chapter called The Obstinate Toy Soldier, said this, The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. You know, the more you think about it, the staggering it gets. God became a man. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. And for our study this morning, we're not going to actually get into the text of verse 14. We're just going to focus on the phrase, the Word became a human being. And we'll probably do this again next week because this is a a loaded phrase and it's a phrase we have to get. We have to understand. The Word became a human being. To really understand this, we're going to look at the doctrine of the hypostatic union and learn what we can about the dual natures of Christ. Now, in case you may be asking, why do we need to get so deep? Why do we need to get so technical? Well, it is my conviction that every believer should be in some sense a theologian. Now, we've gotten away from that today, and it's just, you know, it's sad, the state of the church today. Teaching is a rare thing, you know, because people don't want it. There's a church by my house on the marquee, it says, try Jesus. He goes better with everything. And I'm thinking, what? Hamburger and fries, and it's better to have with Jesus? What does that, you know, what does that even mean? But that's the state. You know, it's just, we've dumbed it down. Try him, just give him a try. Just try him. What does that even mean? The word theology comes from two Greek words. Theos, which means God, and logos, which means word, discourse, or doctrine. So theology may be defined in a narrow sense as the doctrine of God. That's why we need to be theologians. It's the science of God and His works. So as we study theology, we're learning about God. Now, isn't that a neat thing to do at church? Learn about God. Not about how to balance your finances, you know, 12 steps to a wonderful marriage or, you know, all that, all that stuff's good. But let me tell you what, what we need to know is we need to know our God. And if you're ever going to know him in an intimate way, you need to know theology. If you're ever going to live for God, you need to know who he is. Theology is the systematizing of doctrine, taking the word of God and putting it together so we can understand what's happening there. The word became flesh has been expressed by the theological term the incarnation, which comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, and it means enfleshment, the act of assuming flesh. This is what happened. God took on flesh. Yahweh chose to become united to true humanity. And the incarnation came about through the miracle of the virgin birth. Let's read about that in Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Yeshua the Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. All right, the betrothal period was a binding agreement. It wasn't like our engagement. But it was a period of time to just check out and make sure everything's pure, you know. And so, But during the betrothal, before they had had sexual relations, they find out, uh-oh, she's found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. How'd you like to have been Joseph? You're like, can I get a second opinion on this? You know, I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua. They didn't call him Jesus because J's weren't even invented, okay? In the English language, J didn't come about till the 17th century, so they didn't call him that. His name was Yeshua, and Yeshua has meaning. He will save his people from their sins, and Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord to the prophet. He's going to quote from Isaiah here. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So they're going to call Yeshua Emmanuel. Why? Because that translated means God with us. And that's what Yeshua was. God with us. He was Emmanuel. At the incarnation, God the Son... The second person of the one triune God was forever joined to true humanity. And this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. This is from the Greek word hypostasis, which is found in Hebrews 1.3. It says, He's the radiance of His glory in the exact representation of His nature, hypostasis, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. We see this word, hypostasis, also used in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In theological language, it means person. So the doctrine of the hypostatic union means substance. Hypostasis means substance or essence. In theological language, it means person. So this doctrine of the hypostatic union is the doctrine of the personal union of the two natures, the divine and the human of the Lord, Yeshua. Now, here's what we have to understand. Yeshua the Christ is 100% God, 100% man. You say, well, how can you be 200%? You're not, he's not 200%. He's 100 man and 100 God. This is where we get the term theanthropic. All right, which comes from theos, which means God, and anthropos, which means man. Yeshua is the God-man. He is one person with two natures. Now, early in church history, you know, people started wrestling with this stuff because you know, this. Let's face it, this is hard to grasp because it's it's something very unique in the world. There's never been another man, another God-man, a man who was 100% man and 100% God. So the church struggled with these things. And the church would get together their brightest minds and they would have a council and they would go through the scriptures together and they'd try to pull out doctrine and form creeds. And the purpose of these creeds was to give some guidance. So here's what the scripture's saying. The sad thing is many people came to take these creeds and elevate them over the scripture. But men came up with these creeds, so they're fallible. And we need to always go back to the Bible, back to the Word of God, and check everything that we believe by it. The Council of Nicaea took place in A.D. 325. The purpose of the Council of Nicaea was because the deity of Christ was being attacked. No, he's just a man, people were saying. He's just a prophet. 
He's just someone that God's using. He's not really God. He's not God's son. So the council came together at Nicaea, and the result of the council was homoousios of one essence, meaning Yeshua the Christ was of the same essence of the Father. He was deity, they said. They declared the deity of Yeshua. And it's funny to hear people say, well, Nicaea made this up. No, they just took Scripture and said, here's what the Scripture is saying about Christ. They declared the deity of Yeshua. All right. About 125 years later, at the Council of Chalcedon in 450, the heresy was creeping up that there were not really two natures of the Lord Yeshua. So this was the the emphasis of the Council of Chalcedon was the hypostatic union. That's what they were focused on. They were saying there were two persons or that there was a mingling. This is what the, the critics were saying. There's two persons or there's a mingling of the two natures. So the Council of Chalcedon was fighting two heresies. They were fighting the heresy of Eutyches who denied the distinction of the natures. He kind of blended the natures. And if you blend the natures, you destroy them both. See, if you say, well, the God nature kind of blended into the human, then well, that is not really human. And if the human nature blends into the God part, then he's not really God. And you got a mess here. All right. So the Council of Caledon, they fought that heresy. They also fought, <coughs> excuse me, the heresy of Nestorius, who denied the one personality. At the Council, a statement was drawn which was to become the accepted definition of the Orthodox Church. Here, here's what, after coming together and looking at the Scriptures, this is what they came up with, and it's a pretty good statement. A little long, but uh, follow along with me. See what they're saying here. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhood and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regard to His Godhead, at the same time of one substance with us as regards to His manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards His Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards to His manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation." of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. See, the two separate natures they're trying to tell you here. But rather, the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as paired or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So they really come out in this idea you've got their separation here. All right, you've got one person with two natures. Now these men didn't claim to understand the hypostatic union completely. Uh, you know, they knew certain things were true and they tried to form what they understood and lay it out there. Yeshua is one person with two natures. Nicaea debated the deity, Chalcedon the natures. 
Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you're probably a little more familiar with, chapter 8, article 2, explains the hypostatic union this way. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. And then he list, they list the scriptures that back up what they're saying there. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. In other words, he was a human. So the two whole perfect and distinct natures The Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only meteor between God and men? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, article 2. All right, let's see if we can define our terms so we can maybe try to understand this distinction a little bit better. Let's talk about nature and person. Nature is the sum total of all the essential qualities of a thing. That which makes it what it is. A substance with its essential qualities. Now, substance is the real or essential part of anything. Substances does not have to do with material. All right, God has a nature, but God is not material. He has a spirit. Angels have a nature, but they're not material. They are spirit. When we think of substance, we think of material... Because we are physical, and so we're very physical-minded. But a nature is a substance with its essential qualities. For example, we use the expression human nature. There are certain characteristics about a human being that make up their nature. Or we could say that a lion has a certain nature. There are certain qualities that are essential for a lion that a dog doesn't have. They're different, of different nature. Now, the Greek word for nature is usia, which means to be. And then we have person. A person is a complete substance endowed with reason, thus a responsible subject, a nature with something added. All right, so we have a difference between nature and person. Well, let's look at the the biblical doctrine of this union, God becoming man. When we speak of union, the union of the God and the man, there's three categories we need to look at just in understanding union. First of all, there's a general union. God is in union with everybody. And everything. Now, I'm not talking about pantheism. All right. I'm talking about the presence of God essentially and actively in his creatures. God is omniscient, which means all of God is every place. All right. That's a general union. And then we talk of a special union. You're probably more familiar with this. This is the, the union of the triune God with believers. It's a mystical union. And by that, I mean, you don't really see it. All right. Then the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We're one with God. But it's mystical because you can't see it. You don't look at a believer and say, oh, I can see that they've joined up with God. They're in union with him. You can't see that. So it's a mystical union. And then thirdly, the personal union. And this is what we're going to talk about. This is the hypostatic union. The union was affected when the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human nature into his divine person so that God and man forever became one undivided, indivisible person. One person, two natures. The second person of the Trinity took on human nature forever. 
This union is proved by the personal propositions, that is, the passages, in which references to the incarnate Christ, it is said that God is man and man is God. Let's look at some of these texts just to get an idea from Scripture how they came up with this idea in the first place. Now, when Yeshua came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Yeshua calls Himself the Son of Man. What are they saying about Me? Who are they saying that I am? This is really interesting if you pause to think about it. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. What was he like? He was a hellfire damnation preacher. You know, people came to him. You brood of vipers, who warned you? Do you ever think of Yeshua in that light? I mean, we don't, we don't seem to put him in that light, but these are people of his day saying, well, some others are saying he's kind of like Elijah. Wow. I mean, when I think of Elijah, I think that's someone you don't want to be not right or with God when you get around, okay? In 2 Kings 1, Elijah calls down fire and kills 102 men. You ever associate Yeshua with that? People of his day obviously didn't. Some say he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jeremiah, the weeping, weeping prophet. So Yeshua embodied all the prophets. And that's what they're saying. So he's saying, who do they say I am? And he calls himself the Son of Man. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Simon, you didn't come up with that on your own, okay? God revealed that to you. Yeshua asked, who do they say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. So we have the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is both of them. He is human. He is divine. Look at Luke one thirty one. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The, the name Yeshua gives stress to the historical human person. Son of the Highest speaks of His deity. So the Son of Mary is the Son of the Highest. So we see two natures uniting in one person. Speaking of Yeshua, Lazarus writes, So He came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua being wearied from His journey. Here we have Yeshua, and He's tired. He's wore out. You're like, well... And see, I've seen people who attacked the Trinity, attacked the deity of Christ, this is one of the verses they'll use. How could he be God? He was tired. Yeah, he was a man. That's what you don't get. You don't understand. See, if you don't understand the hypostatic union, you take scriptures on one side or the other and you get all confused, all right? He was tired. He was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water and Yeshua said, hey, give me a drink. Why? Because he's thirsty. So we have God... Being thirsty and hungry? No, this is Yeshua. This is, he was a man. That was an experience that rose from his human nature. He's conscious of thirst. He's conscious of weariness. But he's also conscious at the same time that he is the eternal and only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this is clear from the words that he speaks to the woman at Samaria as their conversation goes on. He said, whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. What kind of water is that? That's not the human speaking, all right? But the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's never going to thirst. He's going to have eternal life. 
Later in the conversation, Yeshua says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. So at the t- same time, he's, he's thirsty, he's wearied in his body, but he's conscious in his divine nature that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity who is able to give eternal life. Listen, he must be a divine person in order for his redemptive work to have infinite value. But he also must have a human nature, not simply to become our substitute, but also in order that he may understand and experiences the experiences of genuine humanity. He can only be our high priest and understand the things that we experience because he is truly one of us. He possesses a true, genuine humanity apart from sin. Look at Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. In verse 5, we see that he is a descendant of David, which speaks of his humanity. And in verse 6, he is called the Lord, or Yahweh, our righteousness, which speaks of his divinity. Yeshua the Christ is one person with two natures. You know, we can't illustrate this from the human realm. He's different from God in that he's man. He's different from man in that he's God. He's a unique person of the universe. He is the God-man. Now, let me give you a little church doctrine on this incarnation and hypostatic union. The human nature had no independent substance of its own. As the human nature came into existence, it was joined to a divine person. It never had an independent existence. you understand what I'm saying? Christ was never just a man. When He was born, that human nature was fused to the divine nature. And Christ had two wills, human and divine. Look what He says in Matthew 26. He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Who's the I in the yellow there? It's the human side. Not as I will, because he wanted, no, I don't want to go through this. But as you will, because, yeah, that's the nature I'll line up with. We see the human will crying out. But the divine nature is one with the Father. God's will was His will. You know, the church has always taught that conscience, conscience, and will belong to the nature, not the person. Yeshua was not two persons, and that's really important. He's one person with two natures. When Yeshua suffered, when He shed blood and died, the Son of God shed blood, suffered, and died. When the Son of God went through His atoning experience, it was not simply the human that participated. It was the theanthropic person, the divine person participated in all those activities. He suffered with respect to the divine personality. Let's look at the scriptural proof of the unipersonality of Christ. He wasn't two persons, even though He possessed two natures. He's one person with two natures. The hypostatic union, like I said, transcends human reason. We'll never completely understand it in this life, but I think we need to work at trying to understand what we can. Alright, don't just give up and say, I don't get it. 
Let's just try to line up with what the Scripture says about it. Romans 1, 3, and 4. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Yeshua the Christ our Lord. So we see he's a descendant of David, but he's a son of God. So we see two natures talked about here. The descendant of David speaks of his human nature. He's David's great-grandson. He had a substance with the essential qualities of humanity, but he's also the Son of God, which speaks of his deity, his divine nature. Now, in verse 4, the Greek text ends with Yeshua the Christ our Lord. To sum up who he's talking about, he's the Son of Man, he's the Son of God. He has two natures, but his one person is mentioned. He may be described by his human nature or his divine nature. He may be called Yeshua or God's Son or our Lord. Look at Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son, God's own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So God sent His Son, but He came in the likeness of flesh. God sent His Son, that's the deity. Likeness of sinful flesh is humanity. He's one person with two natures. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God sends forth His Son, but that Son is born of a woman. He's human. Now watch this. The Son of God, the deity, and the one born of a woman, the humanity, so that we might, He might redeem those who were under the law. This is a combination of deity and humanity. The theanthropic person was necessary to perform redemption. Again, we see the idea of two natures, but one person. And that two natures were necessary for redemption. And this is what Lazarus is telling us when he says the Word became flesh. The Word, the eternal God that always existed. It was with the Father from the beginning. That was God. He became a man. The apostles spoke of this hypostatic union often, so I think it's important that we know and understand these truths. Sometimes, attributes true of the entire person are spoken of. In other words, you'll read something about Yeshua that He did, and it's true of the theanthropic person. The best example of this when uh, Yeshua is called Savior, Redeemer. Both natures are necessary for Him to be a Savior, for Him to be a Redeemer. See, if He's human, He can't be a Savior. He's just a human. He's got to die for his own sins. He can't help anybody else. He had to be the God-man to be a redeemer. Now, sometimes attributes true only of the deity are talked about, but the whole person is the subject. For example, John 8, 58, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, wait a minute. Yeshua was born at a point in time. So the God-man wasn't it, but Yeshua, the deity was, but he's speaking of himself as a person because he's only one person. He was there before Abraham. That's an attribute true only of deity. But the theanthropic person is the subject. Now, sometimes attributes true only of humanity are talked about, but again, the whole person is the subject. John 19, 28, After this, Yeshua, knowing all things, had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I'm thirsty. God is not thirsty. But the humanity of Yeshua was thirsty. The I here refers to the theanthropic person. Now, during His incarnation, 
See if you can grasp this. <laughs> Christ was both omniscient and ignorant. Omnipotent and weak. Omnipresent and localized. Sovereign and submissive. You begin to understand the mystery of the godliness? <laughs> you know, how do you, how's that happen? And that's what, you know, people see these verses about his humanity and say, how can you say this of God? We're not, we're saying it of the theanthropic person. Not of God. You know, Christ will say things like, I don't know, only my Father knows. See, see He doesn't know. From His humanity, He was limited. Look at Acts 20. This is an awesome verse here. This verse really, I think, kind of nails it down better than anything. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God. Alright, you got to shepherd the church which he purchased with his own blood. Now here the attributes of one nature, the humanity, blood, are predicated of the person, while the person is designated by the title derived from the other nature. He, it says, that's God, purchased with his blood. Well, God doesn't have blood, so how did he purchase it with his blood? God's a spirit. Look at Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Flesh and blood. He himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and blood. He became a man. We kind of see the reverse of this in Romans 9, 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. Who is God? So we have, according to the flesh, that's his human side, he's God overall. See, he may refer to the person in reference to the human nature of the person and call him by a divine title, as we saw in Acts 20, 28. And he may refer to divinity, divine activity, and designate the person by a human title. We see that in John 6, 62. And Romans 9, 5, according to the flesh, speaks of his human nature, and who is God overall refers to his deity. So here the human nature is referred to and said to be God. In this sense, we have the divine nature and the human nature, but again, one person. The one person may be looked at as human or divine and still not have two persons, but one. There is no evidence in all the New Testament scriptures of a dual personality of Yeshua. That's so important. In other words, you don't see him talking to himself. You don't see the humanity saying, Hey, God's side, how about helping me out over here? You know, I'm a little bit having a hard time. Can you help me out? Or the God side tell, talking to the human side. You don't see that because there's only one person. Now, in various scriptures, we see one person of the Trinity talking to another person of the Trinity. For example, Psalm 2, 4 through 7. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. So you see a member of the Trinity talking to another member of the Trinity. We also see this in John 17. Yeshua spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So here we see Yeshua talking to the Father. The second person Addressing the first person. But you never find the Lord Yeshua speaking to himself. 
There is no dual personality. There's different persons in the Trinity. One God, three persons. But in Christ, it's one person with two natures. Now, the Scriptures teach the unipersonality of the Lord Yeshua. Now, why was it necessary for Yeshua to have two natures in one person? Well, Bancroft writes, The union of two natures in one person is necessary to constitute Jesus Christ a proper mediator between man and God. His twofold nature gives him fellowship with both parties, since it involves an equal dignity with God and at the same time perfect sympathy with man. This twofold nature, moreover, enables him to present to both God and man proper terms of reconciliation. Being man, he can make atonement for man. Being God, his atonement has infinite value. People, that is so important that we understand that part. Okay, being God. Because he's the God-man, his atonement has infinite value. As I said, if he was just man, just some prophet like some people are teaching... How can his atonement cover for us? He has to take care of himself. He has to die for his own sin. But he is a sinless substitute. Therefore, he is the God-man. Therefore, his atonement has infinite value. Very important that we understand that aspect. Look at Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation... For the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Listen, as man, he knows experientially what you're going through. He's a man. He's been there. He's felt it. And as God, he can get you through that situation. Why did the second person of the Trinity leave heaven's glory? And become incarnate. Why did he do this? Well, in Matthew twenty twenty eight says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, he's God. It'd only be right that he came and was served. But he came to minister. He came to serve and to give his life to pay a debt he didn't know. He came to die for us. See, because God... If you could say that, using language loosely, God had a problem. Okay? Because man sinned. He couldn't overlook that sin. He couldn't ignore that sin. He had to deal with that sin. He couldn't just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just forgive you and bring you into heaven. He couldn't do that. Sin had to be dealt with. So he sent his son to pay the sin. So therefore, people, our sin has been paid for. And listen, we deserve to be in heaven. Do you understand that? When you get there, you don't have to put your head down and cut. You know, <clears throat> can, can I get? No. You deserve to be there. How could that be possible? Doesn't that almost sound blasphemous to say that? It's blasphemous not to say it. Because if you're united with Christ, you are in union with Him. His righteousness has been yours. He took your sin. He gave you His righteousness. You deserve to be there. That's an awesome thought, man. I like being places I deserve to be. You ever go someplace you don't really belong and you just kind of feel like, I don't, I don't I'm uncomfortable here. I don't really belong here. Well, when you get to heaven, you won't feel uncomfortable, okay? Because you belong there. Now, if you're having trouble understanding the hypostatic union, you're really not alone, okay? People will struggle with this all through time. Daniel Webster, you ever heard that name? 
He was a 19th century statesman. He once dined in Boston with several eminent literary figures, and soon the conversation turned to Christianity, because Webster was a committed Christian. And he confessed his belief in Christ and his atoning work. And a Unitarian minister that was there at the table responded. He said, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Jesus Christ could be both God and man? Can you comprehend that? There's Webster's reply. He said, no, sir, I cannot understand it. And if I would, I'd be ashamed to acknowledge Christ as my Savior if I could comprehend it. He could be no greater than I myself, and such is my conviction of accountability to God, my sense of sinfulness before Him, and my knowledge of my own incapacity to recover myself, that I feel I need a superhuman Savior. Amen? He said, I can't explain it, but I'm thankful I don't, I don't understand God. <laughs> but I need Him. He's God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Martin Luther was forced to admit that the union could not be explained. Luther said, reason cannot comprehend this, but we believe it. And this is also the testimony of Scripture that Christ is true God and that He has also become a man. You know, the Christian shouldn't be troubled with the presence of mystery in the faith. You know, whatever God and man meets, there's mystery. We need to accept the doctrine of the unique God-man in the same way we accept a lot of other things, in the way we accept the Trinity, by faith in the Word of God. It's laid out there. We see the different members speaking, communicating to one another. We see the same thing about Christ in the Bible. Now, believer, here's the encouraging part of all this, you know, theological stuff to me. Right now, today, there's a man in heaven. A man who knows what it's like to be human. A man who knows what it's like to suffer. He understands every experience I undergo. And at the same time, he is a loving, compassionate God who cares about his people. That's a dynamite combination, people. He's a man. He knows my experience. He's God. He can do something about him. That's incredible. When you pray, you're not praying to a God who has, you know, up there, out there, has no understanding of your experience and what you're dealing with. He's been there. He's felt the pain of human life. He's felt hunger and thirst and loneliness and separation and, and you know, being turned away from other people. Rejection. And He's the infinite, eternal God who loves us. Awesome combination. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning the opportunity to just begin to take a glimpse in your word and understand this doctrine of the God-man. Father, it is beyond our ability to totally reason out. But I pray you'd help us to just line up with your scriptures, to realize that you are a very special person, the only one that ever existed, a God that you as the eternal living God became a human being. That's hard to grasp, Lord, but I thank you for it. I thank you that you loved us so much that you took on humanity that you might pay our sin debt. Amen.